We're without Albert tonight. Albert's on holiday, so we're, well, I think we're uh, we're all being too polite to see who's going to who's going to be the host. <laughs> and then I, I I decide I'm going to speak first and like put myself in hospital. That's not what I wanted to do. You're right now, Laura. I'm afraid. Right that's well, it normally it normally comes to you first in the weekly review, anyway, Laura. So I think that's not too far off the mark. <laughs> Uh, oh, hello. hello everybody. Hello. <laughs> oh, and how are we all this week? Yes, just about. Yes. Uh, so we have well, we've got we've got a, a jam-packed evening for everybody. Uh, tonight we have we've got James Cathcart, one of our usual uh, usual hosts with us, and Ian Jamison as well, another of our regular hosts. Uh, myself. <laughs> 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 uh, we've got Rona Cathcart, who has been the writer for this week. So welcome, Rona. Thank you. Welcome. And we have Jane Steele, who's this is our very first time on the weekly review. <laughs> You'll know Jane from from being a um, from well from from quite a lot of the sanctuary first stuff, especially if people tune into the Sunday live. So uh, you're not new to the not new to the broadcast, Jane. Just new to the weekly review. So welcome and welcome to Jack as well, Jack Steele. Hiya. And Jack is uh, out and about, so we'll get a wee view of where he might be going. <laughs> in, a, in, in a slightly less rainy uh, Edinburgh at the moment, and uh, my friend is attempting to park the car, so... <laughs> Keep us posted. Maybe heading inside then very soon. <laughs> yes, a little bit more rested. I am still going to do an episode from the jail. <laughs> oh no, he's having to Do you expect to be in the jail soon, Ian? You got something you want to tell us? <laughs> Not personally, like, but you know. <laughs> in the line of duty. Exactly. I'll do all sorts for things any first. The, uh, now, the canny viewer might be noticing a pattern. Um, we've got two calf carts and two steels. Oh. And we're having a mother-son special tonight, yes. aren't we, Laura? You're going to be... I suppose that leaves you as Ian's mum, does it? <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be kind of hard, but there we are. <laughs> I, think it might that dynamic, I think it might be father and daughter for long. <laughs> <laughs> See, what it does is that he questions. So well, before we before we get into that, let's find out what everybody's been up to this week because um, I'm I'm keen to find out. So James, what have you been up to this week? Well, um, I'd like to let you know that this is my second outfit of the day. Um, I didn't get chained espe changed especially for the weekly review. Uh, this isn't my weekly review gilet, um, but I had to change because I got covered in kale earlier on today because my daughter is weaning. And today was the second day of her weaning. So we had broccoli yesterday and then kale today. And she's fair got into it. She was, she was going away, but obviously kale ends up going everywhere. Um, and we're following this theory at the moment that if you start with the bitter vegetables, 
it then means that it's not such a let down later. Um, oh. You know, if you start with like fruit and carrots and stuff, like, well, no going back from here. Exactly, <laughs> you're gonna fob me off with some broccoli. Bless you, brother. You actually have a theory. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the smug, the smug first time parent here. So. That's brilliant. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Voice of experience there. <laughs> I remember whenever uh, I was a uh, weaning Michael, um, and there was this, there was this packet of, it was a dessert that came and you you added i think you added milk in it or water but it was so good it was like <laughs> and, and i remember making a whole packet and eating the myself one for me <laughs> I, I i wouldn't be uh, i would be useless with the kale james <laughs> useless with the kale <laughs> no, it's terrible see farley's rusks Right, Farley's rusks and butter tastes amazing. Yeah, I, <laughs> I used to steal the boys. <laughs> and actually, Farley's rusks and milk is also cool. Picking up on the mother and son theme, James, when you were weaning, basically you, you loved potatoes, you loved your spuds. So you would have that all mashed and we just kind of sneakily kept mashing other things and convincing okay. you kinds of potato. <laughs> that, that fine. Well, why is this potato green? <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah, I, I can see lots of things coming out tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know this seemed like a good idea on paper, but now I'm not sure. <laughs> well, wait a minute, what was my childhood actually? <laughs> <laughs> Just as well we've got a doctor here. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, I tell you the tale of the time we dyed all of his food green because he he stopped eating green probably I don't know what age you'd be maybe four or five years old stopped this when you dyed all the chicken yes yes so we made everything green did it work Jane it did it did actually you done for child cruelty for that now but it got him over the that's 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 a new technique that right there they'll be doing that in a book soon i think i don't necessarily recommend it it, right did, it did the job though it did the job it did the job it did the... oh, dear. all that green dye oh my goodness i know i know it's probably not healthy nowadays you probably wouldn't do that don't do that at home <laughs> i did once i did once dye a white I survived. blue Oh, or white sauce blue because it was uh, Kilmarnock. The Killies had won the Scottish Cup oh, and James yeah. was really into football at the time. So instead of the white sauce with our with our dinner, we had blue sauce. We had blue oh, sauce. <laughs> that was pretty cool with my pals from our blue pasta. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> oh dear. How about anyone else's week? So that was me today. My update is vegetable covered. Um, how about you, Mum? What's your week been like? Week's been been fine. Um, our um, cafe is open now this week, so been uh, around and about a little bit, just saying hello to folks, which has been nice in the midst of of everything else. Um, I am also on the uh, final week of a couch to five k. Wow. So um, we will see tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow might be the crunch. Uh, when we find out, but um, um, yeah, I have somebody who does not like running, um, but I convinced myself to to do this, and so yeah, um, so that uh, um, 
has been part of the challenge this week. But I, I've always said to people that um, there's no point in running because the only good reason to run is if you're running away from something like a bear and it's not a good idea to run away from a bear. So really why run at all? Um, however, this, this app that came up seemed to be calling my bluff that I ran across because it's called Zombies Run. Um, and the idea is that you're training to, uh, to help this community which is being plagued by zombies. So I thought, oh well, I obviously need to try this and see if that actually does motivate me to run. I have to say, any self-respecting zombie would easily be able to catch me at the rate I am running at this stage, but maybe that'll improve. Are you feeling good for it, Rona? I am, am I a little achy sometimes? Um, but, but overall, I, f I do feel the benefit of it. I do feel that, that I was, felt like I, I do a lot of walking normally, but in lockdown, there was less of that happening. And uh, so I was getting really sluggish. So it's been good for feeling a little bit just more, um, more active and giving your, um, giving your heart rate a chance to build up and uh, you know, build a little bit of fitness that way. So yeah, I do, even though I don't necessarily enjoy the running, I feel good about doing it. Yeah. So getting there. Rona, that's impressive. I mean, the only way I can run being brought up in the west coast of Scotland is if um, I've got a television in my arms or some stolen socks from Sports Direct. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty much the running that we do. In my the motivation. <laughs> oh, there's, the, there's the police. Well, there you go. You can try zombies, see if that works. <laughs> better than the police. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Ian, I'd seen on the TV this week about um, how they were saying the, in the news that, that people should be trying to get fitter now, you know, because um, being like overweight is not so good for the COVID. 100%, Laura. I mean, at, at, at the end of the day, the that there's a lot of evidence now come out about what makes you survive COVID or not. Um, and, you know, I found myself in a very, in, you know, the invidious position of being not the kind of person that wants to get COVID despite being a doctor, you know. If you're overweight, it's all not a good thing. Um, and Boris Johnson, of course, when he got the COVID, he was quite overweight. And unfortunately, Boris, though fit, uh, was overweight and it made uh, keeping him saturated with oxygen more difficult. Um, and it also encouraged the virus to um, seem to encourage the virus to give them a, a much worse illness. So absolutely, um, the you know the government are you know what they're saying is true. Um, we all need to lose a lot of weight, and we need to do it quickly, and we need to continue to do it into the winter. Um, I, th I think the the mistake that people are making, you know, <clears throat> is that they they although we see lockdown all over the place lifting uh, the truth in fact is that the virus hasn't gone away the virus is still there you know I, I, I was driving along the street today and I saw uh, crowds of people outside Wotherspoons which I completely understand by the way I love going to the pub um, but crowds of people outside Wotherspoons no masks crowded together as if they were going into a concert back to back and I thought if one of you has the virus then one person in this queue is going to catch it from you. And they might be the person that's maybe a bit overweight or, you know, perhaps they, they, they maybe drink a bit too much or, or whatever, but it puts them at worse risk 
of getting the virus or worse still you incubate it you don't have any symptoms you go home you give your elderly mum a hug because you think you're fine um and then she dies and do you know it i think people just have have we're all we're all tired we've all got kind of covid fatigue but the virus doesn't get tired virus just does what it does every day every week every month of every year and um we need to it's a bit downbeat i'm sorry for a friday night we we need to remember that it's not a joke it's it's still there it still exists it's a real thing um thank goodness in scotland we've done incredibly well but it's only going to take a couple of weekends of sunshine and parties and people just forgetting the fact that there's a virus before we're back to square one again and if that happens to hit in winter time the nhs is going to fall over because we can't cope with the winter pressures plus the second wave of covid that's not possible it can't happen i've been very grateful as you say in being in scotland for at least the fact that we've had much more consistent messaging um, and and i think that's been that's been helpful for people and i don't think it's a matter of being downbeat i think it's a matter of balancing your your realism with your with your hope and your optimism you know um it's like sort of bringing it around to the faith topic but that hope needs to be pragmatic as well it's not just pie in the sky it's something that you you want to be an active part of um creating and encouraging not just crossing your fingers and and hoping for the best you know so we can all we can all work towards a more hopeful outcome by um by taking the short-term pain in order to try and and help with the long term i think you've nailed it rona i think i think at the end of the day that that that's the kind of message that that you're you're trying to get across to people that you're trying to say look the virus hasn't gone to sleep and you know when i talk to patients over the phone very interesting thing was said today um from one of the the health guys down in um you know the uk policy maker saying that most gp consultations should start with a telephone call um or a video call and only if it's really felt necessary should there be a face-to-face meeting now there's a huge part of me that, because I'm a kind of old-fashioned doctor, you know, I've, I, I didn't train, um, I, I trained where relationships were what it was all about. And you can tell things from people and you look at just their body movement, just how they are, and it's part of my DNA. So I like to see people, but I find myself in this pandemic having to say, no, let's just work out what's going on what we can do and then we'll maybe bring you down to the surgery because there's a risk attached to that and it's trying to remind people that you know there is a risk it's not a nothing thing to do to go to accident emergency um you know because you're a bit drunk and you hurt your ankle you know you need to think about that because that's accident emergency and a lot of other people have been there before you and so on it's just getting that message back through to people look the nhs is important use it properly um and it will be and it will look after you just use it properly that's all you need to do and think about what you're doing and think about what you're going to say and the doctor's going to think about what you say 
and hopefully, I mean, I've, I, to be honest, it's been an absolute, I've, I've actually find some of it a joy. I love talking to my patients. I really, I really genuinely love it. It's a great part of my day. Um, but I think if I was working in another practice or in a call centre, I would find it more stressful and more difficult because I can't read their expressions on the phone if I don't know them. But because I know people and have known them for years, I, I, can, I can hear what they're saying mm. on the phone. Yes, bye. And it gives me information, you know. Um, but, but yeah, we, we, we're, we're, we're kind of at a funny period here, you know. This is a lull. There's a bit of a lull here, and if we play it real smart, we're going to get there. You know, we're going to we're going to go into this winter, and if people are sensible and they do all the stuff they're told to do, we might not even get a massive flu outbreak. And oh my goodness, what a difference that would be! And if everybody comes and gets their flu jags, oh my goodness, what a difference that will make! You've just no idea. It it will transform the landscape for the NHS in Scotland. And again, I say it almost every other podcast, and I agree with you, Rona, Nicola Sturgeon has been solid in her messaging. She's taken it away from politics. She's told it exactly how it is. This is how it is. This is the situation we're in. And long may that continue. Let's, do you know what? We need to chuck politics out the window. And as an NHS, we maybe need to chuck the rule book out the window and actually do what we're paid to do, which is to look after patients and try and make sure that we get the best outcomes for people. I've had a lovely day today of dealing with people in different specialities, different uh, social work and all sorts to try and do the best for the patients under their care. And it's been really good to work with different people to make that happen. And so often people throw the rule book because they're maybe frightened to see somebody or they're worried about the risk or there's so many pressures on people. Thanks to the, the way that we work in the kind of medical legal system in the UK. But we've got to just take that rule book and throw it away. Different times, different okay. measures. Sorry, I'm on my soapbox. I will. <laughs> it needs said, Ian. It needs said. Absolutely. It's funny, we were, we were, hello again folks, sorry, I was going through some social distancing procedures, I had to put my phone in my pocket there. Um, it's funny, we were talking about um, what you were saying kind of about politicians there in our book club this week actually, with the stuff we were reading and about how that's, how often politicians get the wrong end of the stick and they don't really represent people's needs and what people actually need by just the way that they've got their agenda ahead of what the people are and what the people need. And that in, sometimes they kind of get in the way and they cause more problems than they actually solve by pushing their own sort of policies and opinions and sort of warped views of the world. And it's probably quite true that it would be easier to get rid of them. But I don't know, there must be some sort of a happy medium where we can sort of keep it, but maybe get a bit more integrity into it somehow. But, but Jack, do you know what it is though? It's fear. It's people's fear. People are scared about what their boss will say to them or what will happen to them if they actually do the right thing. They're scared. Um, and so the politicians, you know, I don't blame the politicians for some of the nonsense that they talk 
and, and, and the kind of words they use so as not to commit themselves so that later on down the track they can retract the statement that they've made in good faith on the day they made it uh, and try and turn it into something else by using clever language. Yeah. You don't understand why they do that. They do it because we have this adversarial, we've got to blame somebody culture in the UK. And it has to stop because sometimes, do you know what? Nobody's to blame. COVID-19, do you know what? Guess what, guys? Nobody's to blame. It just kind of happens. You know, I'm sorry, but it happens. I, I think it'll probably, it'll probably, things like that, they do, they do just happen. And, um, but it's the way that we can sort of deal with how we, well, it's like any sort of disaster that befalls you. It's how you sort of handle the crisis and how you sort of deal with it. And I think, to be honest, in the grand scheme of things, there has been errors made, but there was always going to be errors made. It's unprecedented. You know, I think probably things haven't been as bad as they could have been. Um, they've definitely not been great, that's for sure. But uh, we are coming, as you say, there is light at the end of the tunnel. So there's hope there. It's not been great, but, you know, the thing is, it's very easy to make comments and decisions uh, months and months, maybe yeah. years later, to make comments and decisions that were made in the moment. If you weren't that person with that responsibility, who had to make a decision balancing all sorts of complex factors around about that time, it's very difficult, I think, to make a cogent comment on that. What you can say is, you can say honestly, well, that could have gone better because of and then give examples. Um, but again, there isn't enough nuance given to um, things about COVID situation in the UK. Uh, here's an example. In the UK, we have one of the highest death rates in Europe, right? Now, our reporting is totally different from any country in the rest of Europe. So, even But even if you take that away, we still look as if we're not doing so well. But hang on. Our society is structured quite differently from the society, for example, in Italy. In Italy, you don't have so many nursing homes. You just don't. You don't have the kind of social things with, that we have in this country because we don't have granny living with us or grandpa living with us. All right? We just don't. What we do is we put people in nursing homes and there's nothing wrong, nothing per se wrong with that. It's very good for a lot of people. I wouldn't for one second say that's the wrong thing to do. However, it is a different thing to do. And the results of that difference are sometimes reflected in what happens when we have something unprecedented like an outbreak of a virus which selectively kills older people. Now, you might find that in another virus that selectively kills, say, younger people, God forbid, but let's say that does happen. You may find that other countries have a worse death rate than ours. And then you could, you could point the finger and say, well, what were they doing wrong? But perhaps they weren't doing anything wrong. Perhaps their society was structured differently from our society. And I think what, what the media tries to do is to give these simple bespoke, uh, well, this, these rather simple answers to very complicated questions and to draw conclusions which may or may not be right. And I really wish you hadn't got me in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm wondering, I, I'm wondering, Jane, given the um, mother and son theme we were talking about, whether we should be sowing seeds about grannies living, you know, with uh, <laughs> family once um, years past. 
Not sure how that would go down in our yeah, house. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> nice to have your own space. <laughs> oh dear. I was wondering, uh, Jack, are you are you in Carlton Hill? I am on Carlton Hill. Very nice. The yes, I always thing there. And it's a lovely Athens. the sky's actually beautiful. It's it's quite quite pretty out. Mm. I don't know Athens how good of the north. Fantastic. Yeah, the Athens of the North, yes, very That much. makes you the Socrates of the North, Jack. <laughs> yes, I, I was wondering think of something was, clever <laughs> well i was wondering if we could have a wee look um because i can share it here on my screen um at the theme image that's coming up um jack has yeah. uh, many things um an illustrator and a filmmaker and just about everything basically albert's gotten doing just about everything at sanctuary first at the moment podcaster blogger he does it all um <laughs> but for our themes and our new theme is coming soon on sunday it's reconciled by grace um jack's done an image for a so I think I'll just see if I can get it up here on the screen. Oh, okay. There's a glitch that won't let me. Um, Ray, would you be able to help me to share an image or allow me to share an image? It's coming up saying I can't at the moment. It was a good one. You, I'll, I'll maybe describe a bit of the, what I you asked for, for in, in the meantime. <laughs> but uh, basically, James came to me and said, um, "We've got this is the theme. It's going to be reconciled with Grace." And he sort of, they always have a, they're always a couple of months ahead with their outlines of what the themes are going to be. And he said, "What about if we had something with everyone in the house and the different windows, and maybe with some pastel colours?" And he's like, "Otherwise, just feel free to go with it." And I'm like, "Oh, okay, that's quite a wide sort of area to cover in an image, you know." So I, I, I had a few sketches in it. it. Oh, there we go, there we go. Oh, but it took wow. a while to come up with the. But we kept some of what you, most of what you said, and asked for it. It's fantastic, and with, I love the, with love the intention of a sort of, with the intention of doing them printed out, you know, because we're going to have hopefully a shop on Sanctuary First uh, within the near future, uh, and with the idea of printing them out, because originally we were just doing them HD, but this one is huge, so you can zoom right in and see all the, <laughs> the details. <laughs> And it's cool because um, you've added so many details because I imagine that this would be, you know, kind of impressionistic and give us a sense, but we've got a little vase here and a little, this little soap dispenser. That's a soap dispenser, yeah. little yeah. soap dispenser. Important to wash your hands <laughs> at the moment. And a little person on the laptop um, and everything. And, and uh, we just... swapped it. I originally had the, the chap in the, 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 the mum in the kitchen. Or, the, you know, they're sort of vague, the figures, because we wanted people mm. to be able to sort of see themselves in the sort of their own family. Because it's all about families coming together and, well, as the name suggests, being reconciled by grace. And, uh, but we originally just, I, I stereotypically just started drawing the silhouette of the woman in the kitchen. And I'm going, hang on a minute here. That's a load of rubbish. <laughs> that's, that's nonsense. She's, so she's, she's a working, she's a working mum. And the dad's the one yeah. that's uh, slacking <laughs> off. Very good. You approve, Jane? Do you approve? I do. I do. <laughs> You've brought them up well. You've brought them up. <laughs> and speaking, you were speaking of grannies and grandas living with us, and you'll notice maybe in the top corner, that's our, we've got the older, the older couple in, because a lot of people during uh, the coronavirus in particular, if they haven't had their older relatives perhaps living with them before, they have now, because they've maybe wanted to, um, what do you call that, sort of bring everything together so that there's less sort of outgoings and support each other all in one mm. household if they've had a big enough household to, to do that. Um, so I think that's, that may or may not resonate with some folks. So. Mm, definitely. No, and the whole kind of blended family thing as well, you know, not all families are the same shape or size and you get all sorts of different combinations. And at this time, there's probably, I've often thought, 
that there must be uh, romantic relationships that have somewhat accelerated or de-accelerated over lockdown um, as people decide, oh, do we just throw yes. our lot in here and just <laughs> give this a go or do we just go, nah. I've heard nice. quite a lot of funny stories about um, a lot of funny stories about divorced couples or couples that were about to get divorced and then lockdown came along and they've had to be stuck, that's it, they're stuck back in the house together and they couldn't separate and they couldn't go off and be somewhere else and they've had to just sort of make do and some of them have got back together and some of them it's just made things worse and you know <laughs> I, I would have loved to be a fly in the wall to see some of this transpiring but it is it is interesting even you know in a social way without the with the sort of death-threatening sort of tragedy of it aside as a social sort of experiment it's curious to see what we've changed in our sort of culture you know with just mm. being locked up and and having to adjust the way that we interact with people Absolutely different priorities. Yeah. Um, just be kind um, that, that um, Jack contained that use of work together. So as well as like, you know, living together in the same house, you've, you've been like working together on like Sanctuary Bus stuff as well um, over over the lockdown. And how, how's that been? <laughs> Has that been calm? Has it been fraught? <laughs> I would say mostly calm. Mostly calm. <laughs> oh no, definitely calm. Over oh, my perspective, any mum may disagree with me on this, but no, calm no, from no. my perspective. <laughs> so no. far, you're a pretty united front, but we'll find the cracks. We'll find. Well, you know, Jack and I are very similar in personality, actually. Oh, okay. We're very similar, you know. So I, I have two boys, um, and my other son Harry is very different in personality to me. I think more, much more like. Jim, my husband, but uh, Jack and I, I would say, are probably quite similar. Would you agree with that, Jack? Would you, you say? Yeah, I think, we've got, I think we've got a lot. I think I've got a bit of Dad's sort of more, well, without slagging him off when he can't uh, defend himself on air, his more slightly reckless side, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> Very <laughs> impulsive, passionate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, devil may care. Uh, but devil definitely, care. Uh, we, we do have a lot more uh, in common. We, me and Mum will go to the the opera or stuff like yeah, that yeah. and we'll always say you know to harry or you know dad you know do you want to come and go to the, the opera we're going to go and see you know this show and go nah nah Molly. <laughs> so there's definitely but i think a lot of families like that there must be some sort of similarities she's having and some you don't you know see i've found that um so ever since like michael was young um my, my son's now 20 um, and but ever since he was young, you know, we worked at the stables together. You know, this was our thing. And then he's kind of got me involved in like helping these other animals and things like that. But see, both me and Michael are quite we're, we're quite similar, but quite different at the same time. But we seem to be both quite hot headed. <laughs> <laughs> and so it tends to be that oh, we can have like the the two years like want to do. The, you know the work our way and what you know and we can be like no no this is the right way to do it no no this is the right way to do it and then it gets a bit you know gets a bit heated so I've now found that if I'm getting up to help him at the farm I'm thinking that I'm the one that has to just kind of step back a wee bit and be like right like I think I'm 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 the mum I should know better <laughs> I should know better than to get involved <laughs> I'm the grown up about it. <laughs> yeah, but I it, there's been quite some quite um, intense um, 
the intense conversation <laughs> so for the years to do with horses and animals. You know, jo- Joanne and I, when we first got married, made an absolute whole huge massive mistake um, because we had nowhere to stay at all. We, there was no flat or nothing. And um, I'd moved to work down in, I think it was uh, Inverclyde. Um, <clears throat> and Joe didn't have a job at the time. Um, she was going to work in a nursing home. So we spent the first six months of our marriage staying up the stairs on my mum and dad's house. That one must have been hard. Hard is not the word. Oh, gosh, yeah. Mrs. J and Mrs. J both tried to outdo themselves. And who could be the best Mrs. J? <laughs> when two Mrs. J's go to war. You just wouldn't have seen this stuff, man. It was crazy. I mean, from my point of view, it was fantastic. Because really, um, everybody did everything for me all of the time. <laughs> I tried to do it better, which was great, really. Um, but... <laughs> But poor Joanne, it was it was very difficult. So, but we found that we actually had to move out um, after a couple of months, and we found our own flat, and that was fine. We had to go. But the first, as I say, I think it must have been about six months, or it may have even just have been three. But that's where we spent our our first bits of our marriage. And, and see, yeah. the thing is, mums can be very protective with their sons. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> there are standards. <laughs> my, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm quite heavily uh, dyslexic. I know I've found kind of coping mechanisms over the years, so it really doesn't affect my day-to-day life normally all that much. Well, until you get me to write a blog, and then of course it needs scrupulously spell-checked because it's riddled with errors. But <laughs> up until that point, it doesn't really bother me. But mum, oh, thought like uh, the school were adamant: you're not getting any extra help. You're not. You're just not that dyslexic. It's fine. And uh, mum thought like. Uh, uh, you must have fought like a tiger to get them to um, all all sorts of special care and el- extra help and and really it was I it was ne- needed you know because I, I I would have really not got the marks that I did if it wasn't for that so but uh, the the mums fighting for their children I think is probably it's built into their natural sort of DNA it's <laughs> I think it is you know I think it is and and schools of course they 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 not, not they don't exactly have just one approach for all children but they they kind of have a party line you know that they. They follow, and um, sometimes you just have to stand up and be counted and say, "No, no, this is not how it's going to be." Joy's <laughs> being a mum at the moment is seeing my first my daughter and now my son being parents. Yeah, yeah. There will be the revenge element of that later. You okay. know, when people <laughs> look and say, "Yes, you did that to me too." But uh, but yeah, it, no, it's a it's a delight. It's really lovely just to see them see them blossoming as as parents and the relationship building up with uh, with their daughters, which is fabulous. Yes. You are you are loving it, Mum. I've uh, I've heard you kick the word dynasty around a few times. <laughs> yes, I am. I am. I am developing the matriarchy as uh, yeah. as as uh, well Your as two I wee have. granddaughters carrying the torch. Carrying the torch, absolutely. So so yeah, yeah. That's it. I'm all for that. Oh, well, of course, because you're now you know, a, a, a newly added sort of grandchild to the family as well. Yeah, that's it. Wonderful. Yeah. That's it. And I think you know it is like an insight from my perspective. Perspective as well, you know, when you become a parent, 
um, <laughs> just like for instance, I didn't appreciate how much you know, my daughter's six months now, but she beats me up. Like she, <laughs> and it's just her way of exploring the world. But she'll be like grabbing my beard or hauling my ear, and she's just grinning and like enjoying, you know. But it's actually painful. It's yeah. sore, you know. Occasionally, and, occasionally, Jesus sent me messages to say, "I'm sorry, mum." <laughs> so this is what I'm getting to: is you realize, like. There's this whole world that you, just the amnesia of being a baby and a toddler just passes you by, you know, and you don't realize that, you know, mums go through it, you know, and dads as well, like parents, they go through it. And like, you expect it to be tiring and all the rest of it, but I wasn't ready for the uh, judo. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think that's the thing my father said to me, because his father died when he was quite young. And he said, you know, Ian, I think dads need dads. And actually, that was a very wise thing my dad said to me. Very true. Um, and I'm glad that I've had my dad. Not just for the fact he can actually do DIY in a way that I can't, but, you know, it was good to have his wisdom from time to time, you know. Mom, I was going to say my mum as well, but mum's lovely and love you, mum. Classic. Classic. They were denounced. <laughs> but I think you're right, though. I mean, from I mean, you put aside the sort of things where if it wasn't for my dad, I wouldn't be able to fix all the things with my car that I've gone. But my car is 16 years old and does have some issues. But there's, you know, there's the practical uses for having a father, but also there's the paternal aspect that comes with it of just having a sort of someone to guide you through things and all the rest of it. And you get that from both aspects of your of your parents. Um, and I'm lucky that I have both my parents, but some people, they don't. They have just one element of their family. My dad, for example, only had his mum to bring him up for years and years. And, you know, it, it shows, you know, it makes it, no, it doesn't show his personality, but it shows in, um, in her, in, in my grand, because she was a tough, tough woman, you know, because she, she had to be, because she yeah. had to bring up three boys on her own. You know? yeah. my, my old mother was widowed when she was 40. So she was left with five daughters. Oh, wow. Um, you know, so yeah, it is. Uh, but I think it's also the lessons that you learn about making other connections, people who become surrogate family, you know, what you were saying when you were talking about Jack's illustration, James, that, you know, not every family looks the same. And often when, when we lack maybe one sort of parental figure or something, we can, we can find that in somebody else. It was the word I came across. Um, I mentioned it in one of my daily worship posts at the start of the year, but allo parenting, um, which is this idea of the, all the other people who parent us. Um, and actually, like, kids really only survive, you know, that kind of village to raise a child. Like, they only survive because other adults take an interest in them, you know? Like, if it was just down to two parents, you wouldn't make it. Like, it would be too hard, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, they do say that. I mean, it's, I know it's an old cliche, but the, it takes a village to raise a child. But I think it... It's very true. And I think, if anything, we've noticed it more um, now. You know, not necessarily to raise a child, but it needs a village full of people, a community of people to support each other in everyone's lives, actually. And I think people admitting, even as adults, that they need help from mothers, mm. not just when you're a child, would actually do people a load of good, just actually admitting, do you know what, I actually need a help. I'm actually, in, I need someone to come and help me with this. But folk maybe don't for different reasons, for you know, pride or maybe too afraid to ask for help and, you know. and, and actually the the destruction of the family in a way um reflects itself on what comes through the door um in general practice because a lot of things i remember from when i was a wee boy if you know kids were unwell it would be ask granny what does granny think of that rash and what would granny do now often granny was wrong 
and that, and that, that, but that's all right. But there was this kind of sense of ownership mm. over children, over there was a sense of agency over your life, which has been kind of eroded by, I think, successive governments to say that, no, no, the state will do this for you. The state will parent you. The truth is the state can never parent you. Mm. You know, parents can parent you. Actually, friends can parent you. You know, brothers and sisters can parent you. And close people round about you can parent you. Um, but what a lot of people need is not a professional. What they need is a parent or a granny or somebody to say it's going to be all right. Or do you know what? A bit of compassion. Yeah. Just and even if it comes from a stranger, like a neighbour, it it's still, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, the whole um, atomised lifestyles that we live, you know, and, and it's funny how at the moment we're more restricted and locked down in one way, and certainly worse over the past few months, but, you know, we're still in this situation. And yet sometimes that's actually just thrown into relief, the situation, and has made us look out more. You know, there's maybe people who are socialising more now than they were, or asking for help more than they were, because it's become so obvious, you know, so so striking. I was wondering, uh, Mum, you've been our writer this week on Sanctuary First, and I thought this would segue neatly into your piece uh, from, I think, the day before yesterday about those shining faces. Those shining faces. Yeah. Laura, you were saying that you really... Uh, oh, yes. Uh-huh, because I think it was that, it was the, the thought of the... It was the, the idea, you know, that kids, you know, when they're little, you know, is this, like, just do it again, do it again, do it again. And it's just, just keep on asking, you know, and... and and then I like I love this idea, you know, like you know the sun and the moon, God asking the sun and the moon, you know, to do it again, you know, shine again, shine again. And then and it did make me think about how, like, because my son's you know big now, and there's times whenever I would just love to, you know, you think oh, I'd love that, you know, to go back to that time where that was all like, you know, we had to do was like play with the cars again, you know, <laughs> you know, or play with the, you know, the model sheep or the model horses and it just, because it goes by so quickly, you know, it really does. Mm -hmm. And it's to treasure, you know, it's that, I'm thinking about the shining faces and the treasure that comes from that, you know, like the gold and, and the wee faces and then thinking that, you know, that's how God, I think, as well, would look at us, you know, has treasures, has children shining. Uh, I'm getting quite emotional, actually, thinking about it. <laughs> uh, and it was just, it was just so lovely, Rona. It was just such a lovely, a lovely, so many different, actually, layers of pictures, actually. It was just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. It was a really complex thing, though, Rona. Um, and I wondered what was going through your mind, because... If I could bring you to one of the lines you wrote, you said, but perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in, mono you know, in monotony. Mm -hmm. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. I there's a kind of beautiful symmetry and simplicity to that. Well, what, that's that's what, very that's that's the quote from Orthodoxy. So that's G.K. Chesterton himself um, that you're quoting there, and it's one of my favourite passages from that book. I, I love it's a fantastic book. He has such such um, beautiful images, but I loved his ability, which was what I was kind of picking up and and 
that you sort of using the image of my response to my own granddaughters of um, thinking of instead of thinking of God as austere, you know, we're the ones who've fallen away from this youthful exuberance of God. You know, we're the ones who have become stale. And and it was a lovely, I find it a lovely counterpoint to the image of God as ageless and ancient and eternal and everything like that. But also the idea that there's something in the very nature of God which just loves every single daisy. Doesn't matter if there's two billion of them. You know, every single one is just amazing you know my daughter sent me a picture of um macy my my older granddaughter with her daisy jungle you know she was sitting there with all the all the daisies and just loving them that were that were in their back garden and i just thought that's such a delightful picture of god as having that kind of um just uh, exuberance and enthusiasm and i think when we're, when we're creating or when we're exploring images of god and none of us can understand god fully uh, but it's lovely to have a, a, a whole bank and range of images, I think, rather than, than just, just ones. And, and people like Chesterton are good at coming up, you know, and I mean, it's 100 years old, but still these lovely images that feel fresh. But Rona, is, is, is that not because it's, there's no artifice there? Mm-hmm. But, you know, we change our view of things because... We go through life and little things just chip away at us, wee things. And it changes how we look at stuff and how we react to things because tiny things happen or people say things and we have big traumas or little traumas, you know, with a big tear, a small tear, and they're still there, you know, we hold on to these things. And and I think it, it kind of warps our vision. Well, it can do, and I think that kind of links just doing another kind of segue there to in the the passage where I was talking about memories, because the way we revisit memories, and we all know that our memories help shape us, but our own perception of what our memories are, are not always, or rarely actually objective in any way. Studies have shown that that people, first of all, their perceptions of the event can change what they actually remember. And then the way they rehearse it in their mind over the years can change what they remember. So somebody, um, you know, two people at the same, having the same experience a year later might describe it very differently. And it's not so much that one is right and one is wrong. It's that their perception and their way of repeating it has changed it. So we are constantly in that process of change, you know, for better or for worse. Um, and, and yet the idea is that the memories of God are something that, um, that are greater than, than, than everything. You know, we're told that God will not remember our sins, but he, he remembers us and he knows us that somehow we're all kind of tucked into these, these memories of God, which is, which is um, bigger and wider and more mysterious than we can really get our heads around. Mm, that's beautiful. I mean, that, that, and it'll be accurate memory as well. It's not. Mm. It's not our faulty memories where we have yeah. slightly misjudged ideas of what actually happened. It's weird how inaccurate our memories can actually be. If you've ever actually sat down with someone and, and talked about a past memory, and suddenly you get halfway through the story and both of you go totally different directions, yeah. you know, in, in the path. And you're like, wait, wait a minute, that didn't. That didn't happen in my version. They're going, oh, no, definitely. This is definitely what happens. You, know, you can be adamant about it as well, but both of you are, you know, probably incorrect. <laughs> done, it happens done, with siblings a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, I find... They've done, memory, they've done memory studies that show, you know, looking at eye gaze and perception, 
and you know they'll sort of set up an incident. There was one one I was reading about, and it was set up as a as a sort of fake burglary in a in a in a, in a pub, and the the people there were all. Uh, subjects for it so they knew that it was a setup but nonetheless they were kind of responding they weren't sure what was going to happen and when people were questioned about what happened afterwards they would say things like um, um, there were there were two people and their eye gaze will show that they were looking right at three people but their memory of what they perceived what they saw was two people um, so already from the beginning, just your, your aspect and your perspective, your emotion is coloring it. Um, all kinds of different things are coloring it. So that in the beginning starts to change the memory. Um, and then depending on, again, particularly highly emotional memories, when you go over it in your head, little tiny things just change. And uh, before you know it, you, you've got quite a different perspective. I mean, Rona, th 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 there's a real scientific basis for this. There is a technique for trauma called brain spotting and what it does is it uses eye gaze mm -hmm. to channel um trauma and to um the brain wants to be healthy the brain wants you to be well the brain wants you to uh, be a fully engaged human being that's what the brain wants and and, that, and the brain is of god therefore that's what god wants right um anyway long story short um I had this brain spotting thing done once. I went up to Glasgow. My friend, psychiatrist friend, he said, do you want to come up and try this? He says, this is new technology. It's brilliant. Um, and I'm driving up to Glasgow and I'm saying to myself, do you know what? I, I don't have any traumas. I don't kind of roll that way, uh, which is obviously nonsense, right? But anyway, you catch your cell phone, don't you? So I'm driving up to Glasgow. I'm like, I'll need to make something up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm only gonna do. So I get I get to his office and he sits there and he's got a wee lighted stick. And where where your trauma is, as you've just said there, Rona, your gaze goes. Where your memory goes, your gaze goes. And the theory is that the neurons, that the 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 pain that you've got deep within the brain and the subcortex heals itself because it has no language. It can't. It can't tell you why it feels how it feels, but it but it heals itself through the visual response, right? And all these billions of connections just line up after a bit of time and you're healed, right? So I sit down and he puts on some headphones and there's a bit of music going once and then twice and then and I recognize all this because this is standard kind of psychotherapeutic stuff. And he takes my gaze and he says, Right, look over there, you need to follow these things. He says, how do you feel about, he said, what do you want to talk about? And I said, mate, I don't, I, I, I kind of, I, I was honest, right? I'm like, I, I'm fine, you're right, I'm good. Everything's good with me, to be perfectly honest. And then I started to talk about the death of my grandmother, who kind of, she kind of helped bring me up. And I kind of just talked about that, and I thought, well, may as well. And he said, well, right, come on, we'll just start there, let's just go for that. Talk away, talk away. He points over there, how do you feel about it? I said, nothing at all. I said, yeah, I've good i'm comfortable i'm happy to tell you this story you know it was traumatic at the time better now and then he kind of moved the, the wee pointer thing in the middle of my vision and he said how do you feel now and i said do you know what see the chairs that you have in this blooming consultant room of yours they're really blooming uncomfortable it's really sore and it's annoying me and he says that might be your subcortex talking to you 
And I'm like, what a load of nonsense. And I kind of move in in the chair. I'm like, ah, oh, this is my back, a bit sore. And he brings it about forward. He said, how are you feeling now? I said, oh, do you know, I, I really am not comfortable. My neck's sore, my back's sore. I don't like your chair. I'm just not, I'm not as comfortable as I was. And then he moved it over to another side of my vision. And all of a sudden, it was as if somebody had cracked an egg in my head. I, I just broke apart. I literally just broke to bits. I was in tears and I was in pain and 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 what and, and what it was was that for my entire professional life, my whole professional life, I believed in my very soul that the reason that my grandmother who died very suddenly died was my fault. And I believed that for 27 years. And I didn't admit it to myself or know about it, but it was very responsible for a lot of the ways that I would react to situations in my work. Mm-hmm. And and that, I think, Rona, the reason I'm telling this story mm-hmm. is to just say, look, you, you've absolutely nailed it. This is how memory works. This was a memory I didn't even think I had. But where I looked was where I was holding that trauma and, and I got better. And do you know what? When I left that office, I felt I was walking in there. I, I just felt I was just free of something um, that I'd been carrying for a That's long time. Mm. And all through uh, sort of something a little bit more transcendent than maybe your common understanding of medical care. Uh, for, for, for sure. Uh, definitely. For sure. It, it, it really... Uh, it, it's it's the kinds of things like that are what light me up about medicine. It's I mean the physical stuff is easy, but the the that stuff is very interesting. I think, but that's just me as a doctor. I, mean. I love to hear about the studies where they give people the what's the correct term for the pills, which are just aspirated water. It's just powder, oh, like placebos, placebo, and and, yeah. and and they do half and half, and the half that the work that aren't meant to work you know at all and have no effects at all people still come away going oh this had an effect on me and but it's all mind over matter they're convinced that they've had something that and i just think that's fantastic that the, and the I, power uh, that our minds really have that, over because i saw something recently as well jack where they did a trial where they told people they were giving them a placebo right so it wasn't just that you were getting a placebo they were told they were in the placebo group this pill has got nothing in it and those people still did better <laughs> you know they still felt better but, but isn't that the thing about God, though? God wants us to plug into the real us, mm. right? The real us comes from God. Do you know what I mean? The real us is born of the spirit. That's the real humanity. That's the, the universe awakening to itself. That is God, you know, coming into being and, and, and it has always been, but being experienced through man, I think. I think that's what that is. Do you know, I think it's a mystical thing. I, I think the brain is probably a very complicated radio receiver. And, and I think that's... you're right. It's, it's almost like shamanism, isn't it? And there was, um, I was reading, a, I was watching a documentary about Brian Eno, and he was talking about shamanism. But he, in particular, he was saying that basically musicians should be less like, should treat themselves less like performers and artists and more like shamans, sort of medicine. Uh, their listeners 
not in a sort of medical way of curing them from sickness, but maybe giving them sort of emotional sort of engagement that might get them through something. And you know there's a truth in that? Because see, if you're down and you're really in a bad place, how many times will you go and listen to a song or you'll listen to a piece of music and it'll make you feel better or it'll change your mood and it'll sort of take you somewhere. And I think there's a whole other element of how we feel and as people and how we experience things and emotions that we just haven't quite tapped into yet. But that's where God is, right? That's That's where you're tapping into where God is. A a kind of subatomic, always working, always there level. To my mind, that's how it's working. And it's like, you know, when I was talking to Laura, and I was lovely talking to Laura on the the podcast, the creative podcast, and and I was talking about the music and everything. And the fact that you just listen and, and a song comes along. But that that's what to me that that's where God is. Rona, what what's your thoughts? I mean you're because you kind of brought this up. <laughs> well, there's all, all kinds of interesting there's things that um that makes me think of um the brain is fascinating and, and I was thinking about what you were saying, uh, Ian, about um memory um, and how, and, and the idea of getting back to the Chesterton quote of how maybe things get chipped away at us over our lives and, and, and all of the rest, and we, we lose some of that, that initial kind of joy and innocence. And, and I sometimes think there's kind of two parallel things happening. It's like um, various damages from the world and encounters are happening on the one hand, and there's also kind of an unpeeling going on as more of ourself gets revealed through our lives. You know, there's a way we can look at the kind of process of what God is doing in our lives of, of kind of unpacking. Um, and um, and some of that is happening on the level of brain chemistry and, and encounter with things because the brain is is, is fascinating and, and uh, we're constantly learning new things. But it also happens in sensory ways through our encounter with the world in, in very physical ways, I think. And um, uh, one of the things... One of the privileges, and it's, it's a difficult thing, but one of the privileges I find of being a parish minister is this sense when you are conducting a funeral and you're presenting the information about people's lives, um, and it, it may be somebody that you know and have known well, or it may be somebody that you only know through the stories the family have shared. But you're kind of, in my um, perspective, part of what you're doing at a funeral is presenting somebody's life as whole and entire before God. You know, we're, we're up, up until that point, we're all still in the process. We're all still in progress. Hmm. And, and part of what I think you're trying to help people do is be able to get this sense of um, that, that for that earthly part of somebody's existence, we have this sense of completeness and purpose, even in just the simple day-to-day things and relationships and the difficult stuff as well as the as well as the positive stuff because it's all part of that kind of mix and weave of what's going on um so it's quite a it's quite a responsibility to try and make sense of somebody's life and 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 do it and present it in a way that that will give people that sense of um that uh yeah this is it's, it's god who sees the whole perspective we can't see this but what we can do is honor that by by presenting what we have in, in front of God um, and uh, um, 
Yeah, I think it's like when you, in some marriage vows, when you say in the presence of God and in front of these witnesses, there's something about consciously bringing in the presence of God, as well as the, the that community sense around that makes a um, that makes a difference. And um, we, you won't won't have run into it yet in the in the daily worship because I think it will be tomorrow. But um, tomorrow the passage is about. Um, the wonderful lines from Romans 8, 38, 39, you know, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither nor any powers, neither the present or the future, you know, um, separate us from nothing in all creation, can separate us from the love of God, which is something I, I that part of it, at least I say at every single funeral. Um, and, um, and I think that with all these with memories being disparate with our, our ideas and our concepts and things of God, we sometimes need the core things to kind of hold on to. And, uh, and this is a period where folks are suffering from a lot of separation anxiety because of all the, the different um, stresses that we have with, um, with the COVID. And I think that's something real and true that we can hold on to, even if we can't explain it, even if we don't have a theological treatise for it, even if we can't say, you know, I think, um, when I'm at a funeral, it's not my role to stand up and say, this person is, 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 you know, in heaven, this person isn't, this is what happens and everything. My role is to say what I know to be true, which is that nothing can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And God is the one who sorts out whatever that means. Um, but there is power in the, in the saying of it and power in, in that. And, uh, um, Yeah. Do you know it's beautiful, Rona? It's like it's like being I think it's like being a speaker for the dead. I I, I used to feel that when I'd go out on sudden death calls, mm -hmm. when I work, you know, when I when I still do work for the police. Um, but when we would do that, when people would die suddenly, un, unexplicably, uh, and I'd be called to the scene, and mm -hmm. I would look at the scene and read the room and uh, and what have you, and and I felt often in those moments that uh, almost a spiritual thing. Now, my friends all of whom, you know, I don't know anybody that would, any of them that would watch this, but if they did, they'd be like, oh, come on, Jimison, you know, but actually I felt that in explaining what had happened, mm -hmm. that I was a speaker for the dead. I was saying, this is what happened. This person had this, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this is how we are, where we are. Um, it's so powerful, Rona. Um, uh, just um, and that whole thing about nothing can separate us from the from the love of God is that whole sense that nothing ever dies. Do you know if people would just get that into their head, nothing ever really dies. It's it's just a anyway. Sorry, that's just and it's odds that adds the separation. It's odds that adds the um yeah. uh, the the lines of separation. Our organisations and our sort of idea of what is. Um, right and what isn't uh, that that separates our flawed interpretation of these things is what separates people and uh, God, God is with everyone uh, no matter who they are or what their beliefs even the I, I always love the sort of the belief that it's a difficult one to kind of come to terms with but that even you know people that have committed crimes and all the rest of it and wicked people and people you know that are victims to crime find it very difficult to forgive people that but god is with them even them too and with them the, the victims as well i was interviewing ian paget with about his song simon says mm -hmm. and i had actually listened to the song and i just heard it as a musical song i thought oh, this is a lovely song i like that very much and i hadn't put too much thought into the into the words before i interviewed him and i said what is this uh, 
I felt a bit silly after he, after he pointed out, to be honest. But he said, what is this Simon Says bit in the middle of the song? And he went, well, it's the game. You know, Simon Says. Like, Simon Says, do this. Simon Says, put your hat on. I went, oh, of course. And I said, that fits in. Because he was basically saying that um, we have the wrong idea. We follow all these things and these rules from people saying, go do this, go do that. And that's wrong. God doesn't do that. God, doesn't, God isn't Simon. God doesn't say, I, you have to do this, you have to do that. You've got to find your own way. And I think that's, that's really, really true. And uh, it's, that it's our idea of having all these rules and what you can and can't do that separates us. And there is really no separation. That's so, and so I, right. What I, what I would add too to this is, it, is it's not to say that we don't have a distinctive calling or purpose as Christians, you know, and, and I'm not throwing out any of that at all when I say this. You know, we are, we are called to share the love of Christ. We are called to, you know, um, to offer that. Um, but, but we are not the judges, you know, we are not the ones who, who, who make the decision. We, we, you know, we, we read the scripture, we interpret it in the best way that we can as flawed people. Um, and we work within the, the tradition and the calling that we have been given to share that kind of um, truth with people and, uh, and, and try and, and help, them, help them to see that God is just more than they could ever imagine. Um, I think that's, Mum, a lovely, a lovely point to draw to a close. That God is more than we can imagine. I've just realised. Sorry to shush you, Mum, but I've just realised. Get to your room. Get to your room. I've just realised it's gone past our bedtime. Yeah. Um, mothers and sons, daughters and uh, fathers, all. Um, it is time for us to go to bed. But thank you so much, everyone, for being part of this mother and son special. And um, thanks to Jane and Jack. Thanks to Ian and Laura and to Rona, a.k.a. my mum. Oh, Laura, thanks, mum. <laughs> Ian is the son we all want. Well, if I'm going to have this matriarchy, I'll just have to adopt you all. Absolutely. We're all part of Rona's clan. Absolutely. Uh, and it's big enough for all of us from Edinburgh to Glasgow. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but thank you so much, everyone, for joining in. Um, the time's flown in, and it's uh, been lovely to spend this time together. And uh, just a wee reminder that we have our service. Um, I, would, I was going to say as usual, but it's not quite as usual. It's going to be slightly different the first two weeks. Sanctuary First. You'll notice Albert's not been here, and he's on holiday at the moment. Uh, so the Sanctuary First Sunday services are on retreat. We're going to have some quiet, contemplative stuff, Laura. But people need to bring something with them. Yes, uh -huh. we want people to bring an apple with them on Sunday um, because we'll, have a, we'll be doing a few things with an apple. Yes. So, guys, you've, got, you've been warned, get an apple for Sunday. Um, and do check out the new theme that's coming on Sunday. And there's a, a new podcast up that Jack just mentioned, interviewing Ian Padgett. Um, and there's all sorts of stuff happening all the time at Sanctuary First. Uh, it's there's no Albert goes on holiday, but there's no let up. It keeps going, it <laughs> no, keeps coming. Keep going. <laughs> so keep checking the site every day. There's so many things. Um, but it's been a pleasure to be with you all tonight, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Lovely. Thank you. Good night. Having us. Bye. 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 Bye.